Hey yo, we about to tear it up. Yo, break for break, break for break, get down. This right here is how we do it. Break it down. It's the Breaking Actuals podcast. We break things down to the very last compound. My name is Summit, aka the Potty Mouth of the South, and my name is Chris Mitchell, aka the Actual Factual. Yes, man. What's up, back. man? What's up? We are back. What's up, man? What's I'm, up? I, I don't. This one of the, again, one of the one of those episodes where I don't want to talk to you. Um, I don't really care how you are. I'm just assuming you don't care you're how okay. I am. You don't care how I am in general. Um, I could be dying inside, and you'd never know. This isn't a safe is, space. This isn't a safe space. This isn't. It's not a safe space. This podcast <laughs> is not a safe space. <laughs> well, it's a safe space for the guests. Yeah. It's a safe, a safe space for the fans, mm-hmm. the guys who rock with us, the day ones, and the guys who are being introduced to this album for the first time, like someone discovering the score for the first time, or Carnival, or 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 House of Pain, or Cypress Hill, whoever. Ha- House of Pain was Tommy Boy, but go ahead. I know, I know, I know, I know. I said it. That's why I said Cypress Hill. I know, I know, I know. Right. But I'm just saying. I'm gonna, I was going to make a very inappropriate joke, but go ahead. No, don't. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're here with us. I love you guys, but you, I don't really... You're here, innit? And I, and I don't care, innit? You're here now, innit? So that's it, innit? That's just fine, bro. Now, innit? One day, me and you are going to fight. <laughs> I think, you know... You know what? You got, you got, you got, uh, you've got a lot of energy behind the Zoom. But one day I'm going to see you, bro. Wow. Now, one day I'm going to see you. That's the new thing. Not Twitter fingers. It's energy behind the Zoom. Yeah, man, you got that Zoom energy. When I see you, I'm going to box your pret sandwich out your hand and say, what? You know when someone's real, when they say, I'm going to box you, innit? Yeah, do you remember the um, the Flip Mode um, squad? When the album is like, what? You want a box? Move before (laughs) me box you, man. I'm going to box you. When me see you, I'm going to box you. Box and rock. Our old school yeah, terms if, from the 90s. If someone said they're going to box you in your face, <laughs> listen, yeah. <laughs> listen, you better think of an escape route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exit plan, exit yeah, plan. Yeah, because that's old school badness. That's You notice it's not about, I'm not going to come and shoot you. I'm not going to come and stab you. I'm going to box you. Box you. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, that, yeah, like yeah. Jack Bauer used to box man sometimes, yeah, didn't he? Box like, you up, bruv. <laughs> All right. Moving swiftly on from boxing. Um... Today we have gonna, another I'm gonna, legend. I'm going to box you up, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today we have another legend of of this culture that we so fondly love. Chris has lost <sighs> it, yo. Um, no, we have a legend, bro, and another one, and someone to talk about the music side, but they're also their journey into rap and 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 how they became uh, part of folklore in rap music. And, and we're talking about Chris Schwartz, uh, who has a book out called Rough House. Um, and talks about the journey, but also the person who was responsible for some of the greatest albums ever to come out with the, with such a lasting impact. And acts like crisscross, bro. Like you forget about how crisscross and how popular they were, bro. They went on tour with Michael Jackson, madness. bro. It's mm. madness. Mm. It's great. Now thinking about it, I didn't mention it um, because Chris was like, I don't care. Maybe, but the Fugees when they went on the world tour, they took nonchalant. Five uh, o'clock in the morning. Morning. Yes. Do you know who the DJ was for Lonchalant? Who? A person by the name of Young Guru. Yeah? Young Guru was DJ for Nonchalant. Five o'clock in the morning was buzzing. As as a person, obviously, he's from Delaware. HU, Howard University. And New, New Jersey. And I, I, I can never pronounce it, but Nook. 
I can never pronounce it correctly because it's no, no, we call it Newark, but there's a specific tang to the. No, no, don't, don't say it like that. them in it. Say it like, say it like it, you right? in it. Just saying. Newark in it. Newark in it. Yeah, I'm gonna say it like me. Newark, right? Anyway, he went on tour. I think he was maybe 20, 21 years old, maybe. And he went on the world tour with the Fujis. That's incredible. And then they came back, and he was, and he was engineering and mixing Nonchalance's first or second album. But first one, I think it might be. Um, it's called Until the Day. Right. When you speak but, to Guru, though, tell mm-hmm. him, because I know he has a, a, a very rich archive. I yeah. need the KDEF remix of 5 o'clock in the morning. He will have it. He will have it. You can ask him yourself. No, nah, man, I'm doing it. Yo, who upset him, man? Who, Young Guru? Yeah, he was talking some things on the timeline this morning. He said, listen, yeah, saw, I'm not I, trying I to be that, famous, innit? I'm not trying to be famous, bruv. No, no, no. See, you see, that, that, he, he's, my, he's, he's constant. He's my constant inspiration, right? That's my guy, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, you know, like as MCs and rappers, you know, most of our verses are aimed at what Talib Kweli calls the ubiquitous whack MC. Wow. Yeah. There was, he was aiming at a ubiquitous target this morning and I was here for all of it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I was going to message him and say, leave leave that man alone today. Leave him alone. Leave him. But he also then inspired me to write my mess on Twitter. We'll talk about Um, that in a bit. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the intro uh, and the outro. But I wanted to get to Chris Schwartz because mm. uh, the listeners don't care about me and you; they care about Chris Schwartz. It's not a safe point. space, isn't it? It's not a safe space for you, only for you. Um, but th- this this is a, an individual, a legend who has been part of so much legendary music. And when you hear this interview and hear him talk and understand where he's coming from, his perspective, you get to realise he is like one of those, like I always talk football references, right? He's one of those great football managers that may have not been able to fit someone on their team, but knew the the, the talent that someone had, right? And he put together a team at Rough House that worked for them. And they sold 100 plus million records and were responsible for some of the, uh, for the, some of the greatest artists to come out of, you know, miseducation. Lauren Hill is still talked about today as one of the greatest MCs ever. And that's miseducation. Based, and that's based on her performance on those two Fuji Fuji's albums and her first solo. The only solo yeah, she's and, done to date. And and what we didn't talk to Chris about, and we will uh, and the follow up is how well he knew the greatness of those albums. People at Sony, you know, I guess Sony. They didn't did not see that. Mm. They didn't get it. Mm. And that's important because he stuck by his guns. And I'm, listen, I told him off air. I'm so, I was so psyched to speak to him. This is very important, bro. One of the things, and before we get to the interview, mm. I think it's, it's something that we can take with us through life. Um, just how he ran his business. And it's about seeing the potential in other people before they actually see it in themselves and seeing what they can become as opposed to what they are in the present time. That's leadership. That's leadership. Definition, leadership. So Chris is not only part of hip-hop folklore, but he was a leader to that. We didn't even ask him about how he managed the ego of those massive artists at the time. Chatty House, you know, man. Th- we'll have it for the Chatty House. This, this I'm telling you, man, that's the leader right there. And I fucking, in, I see, I swore now. Party mouth of the South. Um, this should be like a jar. No, no, no. It's live in. the brand. Live the brand, innit? All right, sorry. But no, I'm so excited. Genuinely. This is, uh, this is a great moment for me, personally. I'm sure it's for you, Chris. But to speak to Chris, to understand the the, the inner workings of some of those albums and, and things that have been so ingrained as part of my childhood and growing up in rap, I'm forever grateful. 
And I love the fact that we have this platform in order to speak to people to, so that they can lend their voice and to can contribute uh, their voice to the culture. So I'm very grateful for that. But this is Chris Schwartz, Breaking Atoms. Check it out. It's another special episode of the Breaking Atoms podcast. Uh, today, we have, well, someone who's been part of, an, an architect of our childhood as rap fans, someone who's been in the business of hip hop since the early, early 80s, celebrating now their 35th anniversary. Uh, we're talking to the one, the only Rough House Records, Rough Nation, Chris Schwartz on the Breaking Atoms podcast. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Simon. How are you doing? How are you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. Excited. We are very excited. I've got my cassettes to the side of me. I've got my vinyl here. <laughs> when, when the opportunity arises, I'm just going to show it. Uh, because, like I said in the intro, you are very much part of our of our education and and the music and the output and the diversity of music. I should say that was put out through the label has very much shaped how we love hip hop. So thank you for that. And you were mentioning just off about the thirty fifth anniversary, right? Um, talk to us about that before we get into your kind of the i guess the entry point of you into the music business i i guess it was a couple last week about a week and a half ago it was 35 years when i met my uh partner in rough house joe nicolo so um we didn't start distributing records till a little bit after that as rough house but that's sort of like the anniversary of the partnership so to speak okay and okay, um, so let's yeah go on well, I mean, I don't. Are you familiar with the with the whole School D part of our story? We yes, are. We were, okay. we were going to get right. into that. Right. So, so I mean, School D is a. I mean, let's let's go there. School D is a very much an architect of, especially in Philadelphia, um, of the hip hop and the rich lineage that's come through that. No, now we talk about Meek Mill, we talk about Beanie Siegel, but Lady B, School D, we're going, you know, very much back now. Very, I mean, the original gangster, really, Schooly yeah, D. Yeah. Um, and and I and I know the story. Obviously, I know it's not it's not it's no it's no good for me to tell it. But talk to us about that point where you've gone, Bill Cosby, the the comedy the comedy uh, record that was recorded in prison to Schooly D. What attracted you there to then go right? I'm gonna mess with this guy. And didn't he slam the door in your face the first time you went to see yeah, him? Yeah, he did. Right. Let's let's start there. Let's talk about Schooly D. Let's go there. Well, I um. Yeah, I started out, you know, I'm a musician and um, I, I joined the service when I was 17. I was in the Navy. And when I got out, I played in bands. And um, something that I was into in particular was um, electro funk and electronic music. I was a huge Kraftwerk fan. Um, and so I, a, my partner in that, a guy named Jeff Coulter and I, we performed shows in Philadelphia doing, you know, electronic music. And um, so I started doing, we were like the first people to own a role in TR-808. We had it before it was even available on the market. And what happened is that we started doing drum programs for, you know, these young hip hop groups because hip hop at that time and I'm, I'm talking like right prior to School ED, if you looked at what was going on, um, you know, there was very little in terms of what was, you know, programming for the radio, that what was available. You had the Sugar Hill Records and you had Curtis Blow, you had stuff like that. But up until up until School ED, the, the, the stuff that was kind of like breaking breaking at radio was more the electro funk stuff. And that was like really more the club mix show. Um, 
you know, Planet Rock, um, and then eventually like Nucleus Jam on it, stuff like that. So um, I was working at a little record label in West Philly called Nice Town Records. It was like a one man operation. And he bought me into, you know, uh, to help work the, you know, black charts for, for Billboard, for black album charts and stuff like that. And he had um, Bunny Sigler. He had a couple, you know, uh, ex-Philly International artists. But the one record that he was uh, was going to be the big thing was he had a Bill Cosby live at Grade for Prison. Now, at the time, Bill Cosby had the, the Cosby show, which was huge. It was the biggest show on television. And so uh, the guy who owned the label was kind of banking on that and Bill Cosby's popularity at the time to kind of be able to – sell this comedy record and um you know i was um i wasn't the greatest gig in the world but i did it because i wanted to learn the business because i eventually wanted to start my own label and one day i went down to his office and we were talking and i saw these these records stacked up against the wall and there was a bunch of 12 inches of a song called gangster boogie that i've heard many times um and it was an artist schoolie d from west philly and Schoolie had been there that morning and was talking to my boss about distributing his records. And my boss, you know, wasn't interested and sent him on his way. And I uh, filched Schoolie's number off of his desk and I went back upstairs. I called him up and um, I basically quit that day and went to Schoolie's house to meet with him. And yeah, he did answer the door. He said he was getting ready to take a shower and he just shut the door. And kind of left me standing there on the porch. <laughs> so, so I got a hold of his lawyer, and after a couple mishap, you know, meetings that didn't happen, we finally got together, and we we you know started really formed the real record label, real Schooly D Records, and then eventually did the PSK Gucci time, then did the album, did the tours and everything, and uh, it kind of you know went really well, sold hundreds of thousands of records. And um, and then, you know, it seemed to me that that Schooley, Jesse, wasn't real, you know, he he didn't really seem to have, you know, we did some artists, a Robbie B, DJ Jazz, um, uh, Royal Ron, Pimp Pretty. Um, we did some records, but at the end of the day, I don't think he was really interested in, in the label part of it. So um, we ended up signing with Jive Records. And then from there, I started Rough House with uh, Joe Nicolo. So tell me about the, the the contrast in your styles and and personalities, and why Joe was such a, a, a perfect yin to your yang in terms of Rough House. Because Joe at the time was mixing all the hip hop records out of Philadelphia. I mean, you know, uh, he did. You know, we he did the. Uh, Jazzy Jeff Fresh Prince. I mean, Jeff and Will were like 17 hanging out in the studio um, back in the day. And uh, he did all those records. He did the Hilltop Hustlers, uh, MC Breeze. Um, he did uh, the company that had these records was um, Pop Art. And Pop Art also had Roxanne Shante. So he mixed, he did those records. Um, I did the Roxanne Shante video. Uh, Roxanne's Revenge at uh, at our our house in West Philly where I lived. We shot the video there. Okay. And uh, yeah, the guys from uh, Mr. Magic and Marley Marl, they slept on my couch that night. <laughs> I'll never forget wow. coming down in the morning and they were watching cartoons, eating cereal <laughs> <laughs> in my living room. 
I mean, look, man, that's that that was the life back then. I wish I could do that now. Yeah. But you know, um, you know, that was kind of the pedigree. You know, it was about, you know, Joe was what I liked about Joe was that um, you know, back in the in the early 80s, you know, if you do a hip hop record, you go into a studio, a typical engineer, you lay down a drum beat, and the first thing they're gonna do is that they're one they're gonna want to clean it up and they're gonna they're gonna want to make it sound all clean and antiseptic. And Joe basically was counterintuitive. He made it really dirty and big and bombastic, you know? And um, and that that was the whole thing. We we had, I, I felt we had, you know, I had learned a lot about, you know, manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and promotion. And he knew he had the whole mixing thing down. And um, so we figured, you know, we had enough of a good pedigree that we we gave it a shot at doing a label. Okay. All right. Shout out to Joe Nicola and his drums. Yeah. <laughs> the butcher. Yeah, you, you, Him and his yeah, brother. You right? know what? The butcher. Joe the butcher Nicola. I was always um anyone who um is called the butcher, because I'm a big wrestling fan. There's been a few butchers and they were always very serious people. Abdullah the butcher. Now you've got Blade and the Butcher, and Joe the Butcher Nicolo came first. I mean, after yeah. Abdullah. So respect to Joe Nicolo. He was called the Butcher. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, remember a song called uh, Catch Me, I'm Falling by Pretty Poison. I'm not familiar with it. Not me. Yeah, he, too, too he, young for it. he did the, that, it was a big hit record. And it still is actually, is a, is a recurrent. But he did the editing back, you know, this is back when we edited tape. You know, it's not like it is now. And um, editing half-inch tape with a razor blade and, and scotch tape to do edits and everything. And... Um, he chopped that record up pretty well that he he was given that uh, nickname. But coincidentally, uh, him and his twin brother, Phil, uh, their father was a butcher. So, okay. so th- there's, there's two of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's twin brother. Okay, twin Joe brother Phil. Phil. Yeah. Sons of butchers. Okay, I'm not going yeah, to mess a lot with, of them. Stuff with I'm doing a lot of stuff with Phil right now. Phil is uh, in the process of opening up a pressing plant. Phil's a, you know, yeah, Phil's a Grammy winning producer and, you know, he's done a lot of big records and everything, but um, yeah, him and another partner opened up a state of the art uh, vinyl pressing facility. And so we're doing a lot of, uh, I started a vinyl distribution company and, um, you know, trying to, trying to help lead the, you know, the resurgence of vinyl, trying to participate in it. And, you know, very excited about it. Dope. Dope. Absolutely. Good luck with that. And the, uh, thanks. The name Rough House came from a rock band but who spelt it differently am i correct there was yep. a tape in the studio yep it was a tape and- on a lawyer's desk that joe picked up and he said hey this would be a great name for a band but it was r-o-u-g-h and i uh i i agreed but i said we need to um we need to change it up we need to give it a little bit more you know the hip-hop spelling more. yeah yeah you need that it was it, it was a, it was a smart move it was a smart move um Let's talk uh, about Questlove interning at Rough House Records. Yeah. How old was he? Because obviously later, you know, there's the, the, the two grand for the video. We'll talk about the roots later and, and the similarities to Fuji, etc. But Questlove, who hired him there? How old was he? And what was he like as an intern? Um, he was hired by, I guess, Rose and myself. Um, he showed up to an event we were doing. 
uh, what was an event. It was some it was some type of event in Philly where somebody was getting honored, and uh, Rose and I were there. And Rose was my head of retail promotion, and uh, he approached us. He talked to Rose, and we said, "Yeah, sure, come on down Monday, be there." And he came and he did the work, and he was there for there for a while. And and how what what happened with this the the two grand for the video? What video was it? Uh, pass the popcorn. Wow. Wow. So that then leads me on to there were I mean, we'll talk about the success of Rough House and and and, and all the artists, but there were some art there were some groups, artists that you passed up on. Right. The roots being one, House of Pain and Rest of Development. As a rap fan, right. I need to know what were what went into the thinking? Was it because you had so many huge acts, some of them too similar? What was it just you was it just too much RAM at the time? What was it too that much. made you pass on the roots, House of Pain and- It was we could only you gotta remember we were a really small company. And um you know, it, it's uh as far as House of Pain, um we we got a demo, but we were like, you know, right in the thick of Cyprus and you know, we had other stuff going on. We were making a crisscross record and we had Tim dog. I mean, it was just, you only have so much capacity and um, you know, yeah. I mean, you look back on it and saying could have, should have, would have right. In hindsight, so he's 2020, but that's kind of what happened mm-hmm. and arrested uh, development. You know, I, <sighs> that was, that was a tough one because I, wasn't confident through that we could have done the same type of job for them that um with sony that that they ended up doing i guess it was with emi that they signed i, I think forget. so i think so yeah EMI. yeah so um yeah i mean i i just didn't know how we were going to you know going to make a group like that work i mean because at the time with sony we didn't have the the luxury of the artist development that we're able to have later on makes sense makes sense yeah and that, and and just to point on the uh the 2020 it's absolutely it's absolutely true i think we sometimes get we go down the route i do too of going oh, i wish that happened i wish that happened but in the moment in the time the the actual popularity of rough and what you guys were doing was game changing it's absolutely game changing. That's why I say, was it kind of too much RAM? Because it's only so much capacity a a company can have, um, and and I think what should be celebrated is all those successes that right. you did well, have. Well, you know, you know what have. else too? People really, you know, people don't realize back then what went into signing an artist and making a record, right? Because you know, you look at it now, anybody can be a label. You can go get your thing, go to an aggregator and upload songs and everything like that. But in the traditional sense of a, of a record label, first off, you're, you're, you know, we were very successful early on. So, so now, like, you know, when we signed an artist, these people were going out there getting, you know, marquee name lawyers and these contracts. They were CBS, you know, agreements that we were using as our form roughhouse agreements because it had to coincide with our distributor and everything. And these were like, you know, 120 page agreements. And then, Beyond that, then there's the whole administration of making the records, the metadata, the samples, all that stuff. That is a tremendous amount of work. And um, we were just a little operation at the time. We didn't have, you know, we didn't really start, um, you know, I look back, you know, late, there was a point in Rough House where, you know, I had 
you know, about, you know, 38, 44 employees at one point and, uh, you know, counting our national, you know, street reps and all that stuff. But in the early days, we just didn't have the administrative capacity to, you know, to be able to just sign, keep signing people. And we were super, super, we put a lot of thought into our signings. We just didn't, you know, get something and say, oh, wow, we got to have this. I mean, we wanted to know about the artists, wanted to know, you know, what their, you know, their, their process and what they were about. Uh, because what was important to us is that um, we wanted self-contained, right? Um, you know, there's labels that are very good at, you know, grooming artists and, and doing things and, and, you know, but, you know, for us, we wanted the artists that already had an idea of how they wanted to be perceived by their audience. Right. And, you know, because we're, you know, look, as much as, as much as I'm a, a fan of the culture and I love the music and everything like that, I'm not the guy who's going to sit there and mix the record for him, right? I'm not the one who's going to tell him what to wear and what to, you know. And we wanted we wanted the artist to be as self-contained in that aspect as possible. And so we gravitated towards things that, you know, where we knew we wouldn't have to go out and hire a bunch of producers to make a record and stuff like that. You are, you are advocates for the artists. Yeah. And it's it's telling in, in people that you signed and the music they made and the type of, that That's important where, you know, you guys, it felt like you guys cared about the artists that you had on your label as opposed to just monopolizing the whole market and just signing whoever you wanted to sign. Like you said, you were from the outside and the people that, and looking at the history, it was very apparent that you pick and chose the people that you felt fit roughhouse in order to make the right. successes. You did. I think it's also worth saying as well, like it's not that you didn't see the potential in the groups. You just, you just at the time you're like, we're, we're full. There's a lot of work that goes into them. Whereas some executives were like, I don't get it. Like just the other day I was listening to um, an, an interview with LA Reed and he said he didn't get outcast. It's like people say, no, give them a chance. He didn't get them. But, you know, what you're saying is that you understood the greatness of an arrested development and you saw the potential in the roots. But you almost just, we can't do this right now. We don't have the capacity, but they still went on to be great elsewhere, which I think is probably right. a beautiful part right. of the story. Yeah. And, and I'll say this. I, you know, I, I always loved the roots. But the thing is, we had the Fugees and they were so much alike. And the Fugees was... You know, we already had a challenge there, you know, um, because, you know, we signed the Fugees and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, you know, we signed the Fugees based on the fact that there was something very unique about them and something different, but it wasn't at the time, at the time, if you put the Fugees and the Roots right next to each other, there, there was a lot of similarities in the two groups. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, coulda shoulda woulda I, I mean it was just you have to put your resources where you're already committed and um and then after that you know i don't know if we'd have done any better than geffen would have done when they're originally on geffen you know yeah. um the other thing is that you know again you can't you can't bite off more than you can chew yeah yeah and, no it's true you know, and I had group. Uh, are you guys familiar with the goats? Love them. I, I, I had yeah. a, I have a note here about the goats. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, the goats, again, self-contained. Everything was right there. 
you know um I was always into live bands with hip hop. You know, we, we started with Schooly doing that. We, he went on tour with a ska band called, um, called, what were they called? Uh, brain fade. Can't remember, but, um, but you know, it's again, it's like the Fuji's, you know, was live, you know, the goats were live and the roots were a live band as well. But, you know, it just it's too similar and it was about the allocation of resources okay okay i i remember i mean whether there's any truth to it i used to record vhs any performance that the fujis would do on uk television because you knew that anytime they would do one of their songs, they would do a different version of the song. So right. if it was Jules Holland, if it was whatever, mm. right? And the Roots used to do something similar. And whether or not they had, not a rivalry, but a competition in terms of the way in which they would perform, especially live. Yeah. There were some similarities mm. to that. Well, but, well that, I, I think that goes in part with when you're out touring, right? And you're doing these songs night after night, you start to pick up things. You, you start to see like audience reaction to certain things. And then you start to develop that. And next thing you know, it's the same song, but it's kind of mutated a little bit, you know, for the purpose of the live show. And that's, that's a, you know, I see that. I see that in a lot of groups actually. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned crisscross before. Now crisscross huh? are so important to me because they're my entry point into hip hop music. Right. So when I heard crisscross jump, I was like, oh my God, like, this is amazing. Secondly, similar age. I'm like, I can actually do this. So yeah. that was the start of me actually writing lyrics. And I even wore my jeans backwards, clearly. I remember right. I did that one time and I'm like, don't do that again. <laughs> I never did that. No, I did it, bro. I walked through halls and jeans backwards. Absolute madman. But being in, in, in into the music and getting older, I really want to ask you, like, as an outsider now, like, I'm looking into the industry, how big were crisscross at their peak and for for um for for the age of physical sales it was one of the fastest selling records in the history of hip-hop i mean it was like stupid i um you know and it's funny that that it blew up before it even hit the radio because they did a performance on um in living color this tv show mm-hmm. this, um, yeah i remember and, and nobody knew who they were and the next day people were already like calling radio stations and everything like that. And that, that record just exploded um, way beyond anybody's expectations. Mm. Didn't they go on tour with Michael Jackson at one point? Yes, they did. Yeah. I, was over, I went over, I went with them to, uh, I went on to the tour of Ireland in the UK for their shows. Oh man. <sighs> Rest in peace, Chris Kelly. I, I loved, I love Chris Cross. I was listening to a, Young, Rich and Dangerous, like just yesterday, that's like one of my favorite albums that a lot of people don't know. And I'm just like, crisscross, right. such a big impact. And I think it's one of the uh, the longstanding um, qualities of hip hop music is being able to see yourself in the culture. And crisscross did that for me. And here I am today. So they do mean a lot to me. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's uh, really the credit for that all goes to Jermaine Dupri because he conceived it. He basically put it all together. I mean, look, it's no easy feat dealing with kids who are 11 and 12. You know what I mean? Especially in the in the capacity of being released to a label through major distribution and radio and touring and all that stuff. And he, you know, he, it was executed by Jermaine flawlessly. Jermaine has an 
a rich history in in rap way before crisscross mm-hmm. and obviously he came to your attention before crisscross right i never understood or i don't know the reason why I'm in research i think why didn't Jermaine Dupri signed as a rapper to Rough House. What was we the, did? What we did a, we did a deal with Jermaine Dupri. We tried to. It, we, he was going to be like the first artist. So what happened? A lot of people don't know this, and it, it for I forget how why it never came to fruition, but um, Jermaine, um, you know, as you know, he started out. His father was a tour manager for Houdini, the Fresh Fest, and Jermaine was a dancer for Houdini, and um. You know, he was a little, little, I guess he must have been about eight, nine years old. I don't know how old he was, actually. I'm just guessing. But um, Jermaine was, he was producing a group called Silk Times Leather for Geffen Records. And I was doing, um, you know, back between, between, during the whole schoolie thing, I was prom- also doing national mix show promotion and street promotion for for labels. And one of the records that I was uh, working were two records for Geffen. One was 783 and one was Silk Times Leather, which was a girls group. And Jermaine was producing Silk Times Leather. And that's how we met him and his father. So, um, and then there was a group, another Geffen group called 783 that we were, Joe was mixing and I was promoting. um, And uh, that was produced by Muggs, who later on bought a Cypress Hill. We were talking to them on Clubhouse um, the other night. What's that? We were talking to 783 on, on Clubhouse just the other night. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been on Clubhouse a couple of times. I just, I, I can't find the time to, to really get on it. <laughs> Chris, what we're going to have to do at some point, right? We're going to have to do a room with you and we're going to do this. We're going to do the stories and we're going to get the legends in. Right. And they're gonna, and all, we're going to get all the legends because it's a very popular thing. And, and it's a really good, uh, when we set a time, it's a really good, a good place to put the information out there. Because right now there's a lot of disinformation. We're oh, I know, age, I know. Twitter. People be wilding up in there. I heard some crazy, crazy things coming from Clubhouse about the about who you know how artists got to the label and stuff like that. Um, I just the the reason I haven't been able to to engage in Clubhouse is just I you know just during the day and night I just been because I'm putting together like I said a vinyl distribution thing. Um, I um, I did a new deal with Cypress Hill and Be Real through E1, and I just I have I've been so busy, you know. Um, but yeah, that would be awesome. That that would when be. the time's yeah, right. We're we're, do, we're doing a few. We're going to start doing a few. Um, and when the time's right, because I, I think, like I said, the reason why we're doing this is because it's important for people um, who hear this from across the the world, not just the UK, but for the for them to hear the stories from the horse's mm. mouth as it were and to get the real information because i know there are a lot of journalists a lot of hip-hop fans and legends that would be wowed by the stories that you have and we're just the conduits to put that out there it's all you right and, and we will we, we will help put that all together moderate and make sure no one comes out of turn but i think that would be excellent that'd be awesome okay we'll talk chris cypress hill yes now one of the things that really impacted me about Cypress Hill is that they crossed over to like the rock alternative audience and at the same time they were still distinctly themselves like was that was that deliberate marketing by the label and if not when did you realize like oh no no so when did you realize Schooly D for that matter had a massive white audience massive all his shows were predominantly white people so so Cypress Hill was no surprise to me um 
you, you got to, you know, here's the thing. You, you're, and I used to say this way back in the 80s that, you know, there was like a core hip hop audience of about half a million kids if you looked at it nationally, right? But there was another 1.5 million white kids that also listened to hip hop, you know? And, you know, they, there are certain groups that, that, that the, the, you know, the white alternative rock kids would gravitate towards. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, it was Cypress had, they were, they're very, very unique, very unique to production, you know, the, the whole Sonic, the way it sounded and everything. And it made absolute sense in terms like the way the goats, their appeal, you know, um, tell you a quick little, quick little trivia fact about the goats. Um, after the goats, after the second record and they, and they broke up for the next 10 years or so, we would get more fan mail from all over the world for the goats more than Cypress, Criss Cross and the Fugees combined. And a lot of people find that hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. And I'm talking about Eastern Bloc countries, you know. So you just you never know where a group's going to resonate with what you know what particular subgenre of the audience and stuff like that. And I, I think Cypress, it you know, it didn't shock me at all. Mm. Mm, no, it's um, it's all, that was always something that interested me. And you know, you mentioned the goats. On one of our previous episodes, we were talking about mainstream audiences versus cult audiences or cult followings. And what the goats have is a cult following. I was at a dinner party before the whole COVID thing happened. I was talking to a friend of mine, shout out to Paul Eyre. He's a massive Prince fan. We started talking about hip hop. And one of the first things he asked me, he's like, you need to listen to this album by a group called The Goats. <laughs> tricks of the shade and you know we're here eating little hors d'oeuvres and you know rice and curries and all that and he's like yeah you gotta listen to the goats and that's how i actually listen to the goats and i'm like how on earth did i miss this i only listened to the goats like in the last 18 months or so like i had no you idea listen about to the it. second record too no goats no glory it's awesome yeah i'm definitely i'm definitely definitely one of the greatest album covers too i love a cult following i do i do <laughs> i think there's a lot more longevity in having a cult following oh absolutely yeah Agreed. Summit. Um, Fuji's talked about kind of signing them, discovering them. Why do you feel uh, it, it, the rap that Blunted Reality gets? Is it purely because the score was so impactful? Yeah, because there were some there were some joints on Blunted Reality that people just well, they, to... they, 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 they were remixes that happened later on that kept the album alive. But right. I will say this, okay, about about Blunted is that. Um, back in the early days of SoundScan, um, the way records got tracked, especially in the hip hop world, you know, for, because it was under the black music umbrella was that it was always considered your first two weeks were your biggest weeks that you're going to have right in SoundScan, the goats never had like a, you know, they came out, the records sat there, right. And they went out and toured. But two and a half years after that record came out, right, and before the score, it was still selling six to eight hundred copies a week on SoundScan, meaning that six to eight hundred people a week were going in to buy that album, right? That is virtually like unheard of for a record that sold as little as it did at the time, right? So what that showed was that they were gaining new fans every day from their live performance because they toured Europe a bunch of times and, you know, 
and you know the Fugees they had they had like they had real love I mean among their live audience so there was a lot of time effort energy and resources that went into this group that when before the score came out that when this by the time you know the score came out it was just like the perfect storm no fair in my hand i hold uh the cassette and i've got the vinyl in the back but this this is different uh chris i was in india when this came out <laughs> i see it let me see yeah this is a different type of case it's a bit of a thicker case right right so this was 90 rupees 90 rupees back then well right now the going rate is like 70 rupees is a pound right so say 90 rupees would be like one pound 20 right or one one dollar 20. so i bought this back then this is probably arguably the this is probably the album especially the skits this album was everything to me this album was everything to me i i remember when I was young, I've never seen Fuji like Lada that. video. Neither have I. Sorry, say that again. I've never seen packaging like that for a cassette. I have All Eyes on Me, Life After Death, LL Cool J's albums, all on this type of casing. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. Absolute crazy. I thought you might enjoy it. No, I it's awesome. I love it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back in the day, before, like, you know, you, I've got Carnival here, right? But before we, we, they went kind of slimmer, this is how the packaging used to be, uh, especially in India, right? Um, but I remember Fujila. So, uh, you know, I used to love reggae before I, I, I started into hip-hop, right? That was my thing. So Fujila hit a bit differently. Right. Um, there was a show called Flavor TV. It used to be on Channel mm, 4 in the UK. Yeah, I remember. One thirty in the morning. Yep. It used to come on, I think, maybe a Sunday. And they promoted that they were going to have... The, the UK premiere of Fuji La. So you know what we did? We put the VCR on timer, recorded it, and when I woke up for breakfast to go to school, what I was doing my cereal, watching Fuji La over and right. over and over again before I went to school. That's how crazy for me, you know, the score and Fuji in, in particular. So we've talked about discovering, talked about signing. Let's talk a little bit about the sample side sampling because that becomes a, a a massive issue when it comes to the score um is it true and whether you know this or not, is it true that for ready or not enya gets 110 percent of the publishing because ready or not goes into the next song because of the skit and it follows through now now it's not but um the the first that fuji score record and the first Cypress record were both um, were both had samples that were not cleared ahead of time, and so the the it's a really bad position to be in when you have a song out there and you don't have um, you don't have the rights cleared for it, whether it's a sample or somebody else's song or you know or producer or anything like that. It's just an impossible position to be in, so. Um, I don't believe so about the, about the percentages, but I do know that some pretty hefty checks were written, you know, got it. Got yeah. It, got it. Got it. That this things like this is why I think the clubhouse thing will be so important because I hear information spurted down. I'm like, where's this coming from? How do you know mm. this? We need to speak to Chris, right? Right. <laughs> but this, this is what, this is why it's so important. But 
talk to us about the first time you heard the score. When was the first time? I mean, you might have heard it in the process, but yeah, I heard it in the process. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. Um, you have to remember the record. Well, let's 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 go before the before they even embarked on it was um, was that um, you know there was immense pressure from Sony Music to drop the Fugees. And, um, and I didn't get it because I looked at the fact that we were still, again, going back to selling the six, 800 copies a week sound scan and how their live show had really turned into something like amazing. And you knew you had something amazing. Um, so the, when we did the exercise, the option, I think the second album, the budget was like $135,000. By this time, they had already gotten to where they, you know, because let's face it, the, 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 with the Fugees, the creative process never stopped from the first album through touring. Um, I bought them a, um, a portable studio. It's like it was set up in a big road case and it was a, a bunch of um, digital multi-track machines i forget what we called these you could do like there was eight tracks on each one and i had there was like three of them stacked up so it was like 24 tracks and then some outboard gear and everything like that and it was all on a road case on wheels that would slide under the tour bus right and um so they were constantly writing all the time and so by the time um it was you know that we exercised the option and gave them the budget to make the second record they had already had the ideas in place and, um, you know, they took their time and, um, you know, the songs started to trickle in. And um, one of the things was um, killing me softly because even though it wasn't the first designated single on the record, once the vinyl got out there, the DJs, you couldn't stop it. You, you couldn't stop the record. And that's really what, you know, gave it, you know, it caused it to go number one in every country throughout the world. And next thing you know, it's like records going gold and platinum everywhere. And we're not even, <laughs> we're not even into the first single Fuji lie yet. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, we knew it was a masterpiece, you know, upon hearing the songs and the way it came together. How, how many, how many copies has the score sold to date? Um, well, I have to think in the United States, it's approaching diamond. As you know, uh, Miss Education just went diamond. Uh, Congratulations, 10, by the way. Yeah, thank you. 10 million. What? And I'll tell you what's unique about the Miss Education going diamond. And that there's only been, I think, since 2004, five records that have achieved diamond. And um, there was only three rap records of the five, and two of them were Tupac and Eminem. But those were double album sets, which count as two records. So they were they went diamond just based on five million sales of two album sets. But um, I have to think the the um, you know that both records, uh, the the score and um, Miseducation, are you know probably up like thirty million worldwide, more so each. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because I, I read on Wikipedia and I don't trust Wikipedia for the most part. It said about 20 million and I'm like, nah, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be. 
Yeah, but you got to remember the Wikipedia, that's old. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But it's one of those this things where... This is why we have Chris. Um, when I was going to record stores, I always used to, and this might be a naive way of looking at things, but I always looked at what was in stock and how much. And I would right. constantly see the score being bought. Like, I'm talking over a period of years. I, I bought the score three times. And I'm one right. person. So I'm thinking if I bought it three times, you've got people out there that will buy the CD, they'll buy the vinyl, yeah. they'll buy the digital. Then I went out and bought the bootleg versions twice. I'm like, it's got to right. be more than that. Okay, let's talk about... Let's talk about this. <laughs> Shall we? He's holding up the uh, the vinyl copy of Halftime by Nasty Nas, just just for the benefits. Can I, can I see that again? Let me see that cover yes, again. So it's the, uh, the the Butch Mixers on here, the instrumental, the uh, Large Professor uh, version. We've also got the Rough House with the, with the, the kind of, I guess it's wow. a, a blue. Yeah, yeah, um, that's our label. That's it. Because I remember, and I'm like, Rough House? Fuji's? Tim Dog? You know? Yeah, you no, know, no. Nah, obviously, later, Outsiders, you know, all, all of that. Um, right. So, my understanding is there was a... It involved a cassette. There was a meeting with you. So, let's talk about you signing, Nas. Search, Faith, Faith Newman. Yep. And Nasir Jones. Was it in Philly? In yes. the diner in Philly? Yes. I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Um, so, about... For the for eight for eight weeks prior to this meeting, I had a friend who owned a nightclub, and he was always he managed a club. Actually, we used to hang out till the wee hours in the morning, partying and doing all sorts of stupid stuff. And he was always playing me uh, live at the barbecue, and he was saying, "Man, you got to find this kid Nas." And and I assumed that Nas was signed to Stu Fine and Wild Pitch, right? And so one day the president of Columbia Records calls me up and he said, um, Don Einer, he said, I want you to have a meeting with uh, MC Search and Faith Newman about this rap artist named Nas. And I was like, huh? What? Like, really? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So they come down to Philly and um, we go out to eat. We hang out and... You know, I was like super excited and we did this deal. And so Nas is a roughhouse artist. And we, um, so it was like, it was two things that happened. Search had a, um, a soundtrack that he was working on called Zebrahead. It was a movie starring Michael Rappaport. And it was about a white kid kind of involved in hip hop culture and everything. And so... We did a deal. We signed Nas as an artist, and we did a deal for this to distribute the soundtrack for Zebrahead. And we, you know, we were going to Nas do the first song, Halftime. So we put Halftime out. It does really well, and we're making Nas's record. And one point, I got they sent me like five or six songs, and John Schechter from the Source comes by my office. And I give him a copy of the five songs on the DL. I said, you can't really play this for anybody, you know, but it's for you because the source, you know, I, I sent out the first copy of the source for them with School ED in the School ED retail mailings when it was just a uh, newsletter. Um, and so I find out later on that Dave Mays had called Donnie and said, we're putting Nas on the cover of the source and Nas is going to be huge and everything. 
And the reason Sony, Columbia Records, directed Faith and Search to, to bring Nas to us is because they didn't want to sign Nas. They weren't, you know, they didn't really right. get it. And they felt that, okay, well, if you put it on Rough House, if the project fails, we can just deduct all the losses from Rough House, from the money that we owe Rough House, right? But I guess what they weren't counting on was that Nas already had like a big name in the streets and, you know, and then halftime came out and now everybody's talking about Nas and they realized that they had kind of like screwed the pooch in a way. So basically they kind of, you know, at the time I had a lot of big records and I had a lot of stuff going on and my relationship with Sony was really important, you know, and I also admittedly was a little bit of a wimp and they kind of bullied me into selling them back to contract, which I did. Um, and the reason for that being, and I've had to explain this in many interviews is that, you know, my relationship with Columbia was super, super important because we were doing so well. I didn't realize that I had the juice to say, no, we're keeping it. You know what I mean? Cause they really, they really kind of like put me through the ringer in terms of like, you know, Donnie says I'm in trouble with corporate on this and you need to help me out and stuff like that. So, um, we, we, you know, we, um, we caved and, uh, we sold them back the contract. Did you ever have a conversation with Nas after about that? Oh yeah. Did he ever... Every time I saw him, he'd say, Oh man, I wanted to stay on rough house. I, I wanted to stay on rough house. And I, I didn't even realize at the time it was that important to him. You know what I mean? But apparently when I saw him in Europe a couple of times, cause you know, he, he toured with the Fugees and everything. And, um, yeah, but you know, all's well that ends well. I mean, he went out and he, he obviously has a massive career and he's still relevant till this day. And he's uh, a leading tech entrepreneur and, you know, very happy for him. Yeah. He would have been, um, he would have been a really good fit, like a long-term fit on Rafael. Oh, I know. I know. I know. He would have been perfect. And just think about... Chris, 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 can I, Chris knows. He knows. He knows. What do you mean? He knows. He knows. <laughs> This this is this is the, listen. Look at the resume. He knows. You know, we've, we've talked about Michael, this already. Michael Ball, Jermaine's father. One time, we were sitting in a hotel, and he said, "He said to me, he goes, imagine if you had, if you'd had uh, Arrested Development, <laughs> House of Pain, <laughs> if you'd kept <laughs> You would have monop- You would have monopolized everything." Yeah. Every audience, the you would have had the street audience, the alternative audience, yeah. the roots. But you know what? I was happy. I was happy with our little slice of the pie, though. Okay, all right. Um, I know you've mentioned you've mentioned Nas, House of Pain, Arrested Development. Just to just to make sure we've we've cleared the slate and left it clean. Are there any other artists that you tried to sign that got away from you? Um. Well, it's funny. I had a um. I I had a um. A um interesting LinkedIn conversation with Matthew Knowles and, you know, he's on LinkedIn and I, I, you know, texted him and introduced myself and he came back telling me that he goes, you don't remember me. And I said, uh, no, Mr. Knowles, I don't remember you. And by, he goes, well, you passed on, he goes, you passed on, um, on destiny's child. And he, and then he says, I even have the pass letter to prove it. <laughs> and, well, I'm going to tell you this. 
anybody that knew me back in the day knows that I don't, I didn't do pass letters. You know what I mean? I thought pass letters were like a pussy move. And if I, what, if I wasn't interested in not signing an artist, it was somebody that we were in active discussions with. I would call them up and tell them, you know, is it a pass letter? I mean, pass letter. It's like, you know, yeah. So that didn't happen, but for some reason he's got it in his mind that we did. And it was the group had a different name, but I would have remembered. I would have remembered a father coming in with his, you know, with his daughter and her group. And I would have remembered that. And I know it didn't happen, but anyhow, he's convinced, he's convinced that you, you turned down Destiny's Child. Yeah. But you know, it's funny. He was kind of like, you know, he was a little belligerent in, in his, in his verbiage. And I was, <laughs> I was like, really? Like, let's just say that that did happen. Right. What, what do you care at this point? I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> come on, Destiny's Child. But, but the thing is, I think what it is, is I think it's like us. Everyone knows what Rough House meant to, to music, to hip hop, to, to people coming up. We all knew. And sometimes like legends and, and people in the game, they always have this, I guess it's, it's like a romance affair that they wish, like, like if I was a rapper, I would have loved to have been on Rough House or Loud or something like that, right? Because of the, the mystique and, and, and the people they had. And I think for, for Mr. Knowles, it might have been that. And also, that he still, before I hand you over. you guys ever interviewed Steve from Loud? Rifkin? Yeah. I've interviewed Steve Rifkin in, uh, in, a, in a previous life, like, like 10 years ago. You should talk Absolutely. to him again. You should talk to him again. We did. I, I um, I, I did. We did. I screwed the pooch on that one. I like that um, term. Screwed the pooch. Yeah. I screwed the pooch on that one, Chris. I'm gonna get into my nerd bag, Mr. Schwartz. Dig in. There was there was a group on your label called the Outsiders. Yes. Now I am. Yes. When it comes to the Outsiders, right? I thought these guys are gonna be huge, 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 huge. Eminem, Ra Digger, you know, um. Desperados, pace one. This is how the West was won. Armado, true Desperado. Yeah. I'm like, they're going to be huge. Yeah, Cowboys, that was on the score, yeah. Right. I feel, and I'm going to say this respectfully, the Outsiders could have been bigger. Like, looking back. I, well, you know, it's funny you say that. I felt that too. And, um, you know, and I love those guys to death. We did a tour with... Um, with uh, Method Man, Red Man, and we, I, you know, I wrapped a big tour bus with the artwork from the uh, Nightlife EP, and they were doing all the House of Blues venues across the United States, and they got to the very first one in Chicago, and one of the guys from the Outsiders punched a security guard, and he got kicked off the tour. And um, we did another record, The Bricks, and you know, um, but the outsiders, they were of all the groups I've had and as talented as they were and everything, they were, they were a little bit of a handful, you know, and they kind of just imploded. It wasn't me, you know, it wasn't, I would have gone on to make other records with them. And, um, but I was always a huge, huge fan of the group. Always loved the group. And, uh, they, they, you know, I'm always proud that they're a part of the whole rough house pedigree. Mm. Pace One said on um, a Raw Digger record, and this is a line that I've always wanted to know what he meant. He said, break your team up like Chris Schwartz and Joe Nicolo. And he said that in 2000. Do you do you know of that line and, you know, what he was possibly referring to? Break your team up. Oh, 
He meant Joe and I splitting up. Okay. <laughs> that's, right. what he, that's what he was that's talking fine. <laughs> Yeah, he meant That's fine. Twice. So it's, it's as simple as that. I thought it was some deep subliminal, like... No. Okay. It's, okay. it's really interesting, the, the relationship you have with Jersey. And I know Philly, from a geographical perspective, Philly and Jersey, they're, they're in close proximity. But from your time pressing and going to pressing plants in your early days to to the Fuji's, to the outsiders, New Jersey and Philly, you have a, a very rich connection there. Yes. Philadelphia is uh, just recently was uh, was nominated by the RIAA and Nielsen as being the second biggest music market in the country, with uh, Los Angeles being first. And the reason being is because the way we're geographically located. We're right next to Jersey, obviously. Uh, then you have Delaware and Western Pennsylvania. So it's a, and then you're a proximity in New York. So we're a massive music market. Um, but, you know, the thing about Philadelphia, Philadelphia is also one of the hardest markets for radio to break our artists on radio. And that's for any genre of music. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jersey is always played a big part in, in the rough house story. Um, yeah, I mean, started early with depressing plants over in Jersey and then the artists and everything. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a group that I'm uh, looking at right now from North Jersey called the Hot Boy Mafia. And not to be confused with another Hot Boy Mafia from the Bay Area. This is a the Hot Boy Mafia that I'm talking about. They're a Spanish language hip hop group and um, they're awesome. And I love what they do. And uh, I'm trying to put something together with them right now. If you look them up, if you look them up, there, there's, um, if you look them up, they have a song called Bando. Right. Bando, yeah, B-A-N-D-O. Okay, Bando, Hot Boy Mafia, got it, got it. I have another nerd question. Call of the Wild, what happened to that album? I need it in my life. Oh, Call of the Wild, uh, that was a Muggs, that was Soul Assassins, and that was Muggs' group, and uh, we did a record, you know, um, and, you know, just sometimes things don't happen the way you want them to, you know. Um, but, you know, we we gave it we gave it its due and the record went out there and it, it had pockets, you know, but just not enough to, you know, to want to keep going. But also that record happened right before the brink of when Joe and I split up. Understood. OK. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And we had the, the label closure and then the reactivation with Beanie Siegel. Before we get there, what were the lessons you learned from signing DMX? From DMX? Yeah. Um, DMX. You know, and I tell you, I, I Born Loser, I love that. I love that record to this day. It's one of my favorite hip-hop records. Um, DMX was kind of like, out of sight, out of mind uh, for us because it was bought into us by a guy named Kurt Woodley, who was from New York, who's one of our A&R people. And, you know, the record went out there, we put it out and it got, you know, it got some attention, but by the time his option came up, he was already in the thick of it with the folks from Rough Riders. And, um, you know, so we didn't, we didn't really exercise the option on it and he was already dealing with them and i'll say this all right that i think i think that for him as an artist he was on a he was in a much better situation with rough riders because they did an amazing job with him agreed yeah i think so i think so but you're still a part of the dmx story still a big part yeah of it. Uh, yeah 
and and I th- again it talks about the legacy of the of the label and the impact you had in the, I guess uh, this tri-state but then also going into Philly right so because it's, it's not so far so the, the the legacy of the label still rings true and I think as we're rounding up because I'm conscious of time and we will do that we will talk again Chris there is no doubt that's we will fine, talk again. Man. it's clubhouse on air we will talk again but I think I think we want to end on the legacy of the label and and for me it's the output but speaking to you it's very I'm very cognizant of the fact that everything you did even the I guess the artists that you passed up on what your quote unquote there was you guys are music people and the the output you've had on that label and will continue to have with Rough Nation I think is incre- I think it's important to note like Chris said you didn't just pass on someone because you didn't see it you saw it and understood right this is their path this is our path and you're responsible for so much greatness within rap and I think that's a that's a wonderful legacy to be a part of because yeah I don't think I've never heard anyone say anything to the contrary about you guys about you know I mean apart from Mr. Knowles now um apart from you know, the, the past <laughs> right but but he he probably heard that from Clubhouse and then someone probably made something up right but Neither no, this was long before Clubhouse. This was okay, like last fine, year. Fine. Yeah. I, I just want to say Clubhouse because it's a new thing to say Clubhouse. But um, but, <laughs> but genuinely speaking, I think what you guys—I was—I was talking to my wife, who's not a, a hip hop head by any stretch of the imagination, knows who some of these artists are. But when I was breaking down your story to her and the 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 albums and the artists that you've been part of, of or whose journey you've been part of and helped along, she was just like, "Wow." And that's the legacy, is that you have been that yeah. person for all of these people. And I love what Cypress Hill said. I think it was in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, how they shouted you and Joe out. And I think that's yep. a testament and the legacy you guys have put. And I think the reason why I wanted you on it and the reason why me and Chrissy wanted you on it is for that very purpose. Everyone talked about score and all eyes on me and all this, and they're supposed to. But you also yeah. have to talk to the people that allowed that and enabled that, mm. I guess, the enabled those behaviors to thrive and that's roughhouse right yep yep well i'm writing i'm writing a new book um it's called from rebels and poets to kingpins and moguls and it's about it's about really the kind of like the start and the evolution of the hip-hop economy and how how hip-hop was really the first genre of music to create its own economy when you come right down to it it's never happened before and you look at it from the very beginning, from the, the intrepid entrepreneurs who, who started to now you have, you know, these artists and, and, and label owners who are, who are, they're like hip hop industrialists, for lack of a better term. So, um, yeah, when, when, that, when that comes close to fruition, we need to talk about that again. You know, that would be would fun. Would love to. Would love to. That would be excellent. Because we're quite, we we were on a we were moderators on a clubhouse room early this afternoon about hip hop, the culture, and business obviously comes up and independent artists and how to do this, how and I think that information and understand the history of it and then think about tangible solutions. I'm yeah, down. It would I'm be down. awesome. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, Summit. Chris, this is really really fun. No, man. It's, it's all good. Um, I'm going to leave okay. you to it. I'm going to go listen to some Psycho Realm and just go about my day. Okay. I'll talk to you guys <laughs> later. Have a good one. Peace. See ya. A big thanks to Chris. Wow. There's some gems in that one, bro. Many jewels. OC yeah. would be proud. OC would be proud. 
I'm gonna send this to OC. Um, I'm gonna send this to OC. I'm gonna stunt. I'm gonna send this to OC. He's, he's listen, one of the greatest MCs ever. Come to, on now, to grace the earth. Come on um, now. But ah, oh, there's so much to unpack about that episode. I'm not even sure where to start. Don't. Um, let it resonate. Let it marinate. You have to let it marinate. I'm telling you, this guy's a leader. Mm. He knew. He knew. Just it didn't work at this point, or he may like. The bullying thing about Sony and Nas, it doesn't sit right with me because I'm just, I have a certain feeling towards bullying and music in the industry, but that happens and it still happens. And but bro, like, come on, man. Like, think about it like this. The people who he couldn't sign or he was unable to sign went on and had great careers elsewhere. So yeah. that's still a part of his legacy. And think about it. Sometimes it's like the way I see it, is that sometimes the things you may quote unquote turn away add value elsewhere. So think about the other places he's added value without necessarily being there. That's part of his legacy too. Like Facts. Q-Tip, they wanted him on um, Lab Cabin California. Farside reached out to Q-Tip, said, listen, we want you as part of this album. I'm busy on the infamous, but you know what? I know a guy called JD. Q-Tip mm. not being available added greatness even in his absence. I'm, pre- I'm preaching. Sorry. No, you no as you I, I, as you should as you should. You need to give me some do say though, innit? So I can I can get some of that. No, 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 um, no, no, no. I got some liquor here with me now. Some Cuban rum <laughs> and some coke, bro, bro. I'm open. But you know what? Big up to Cristo. He was a real one with his um. He was right with his green hat. Was it green? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. green beanie hat and that. It's green. It's green. Uh, but Chris no, Schwartz I, and that. That's a serious name, you know. Listen, it's, it's a serious pilot. He's a serious person in this yeah, game. Bruv. Chris Schwartz, bruv. He's done a lot. and Sounds rich. Um, like I said, like we said prior to the start of the episode, Guru and, and him going at, us, you know, individuals or individual, I don't know, uh, m- made me think, hey, man, I need to say something about some things that I need to get off my chest. But speaking to, to Chris just now, he's... It's warmed my it's warmed my heart. Where I'm, I wasn't angry, by the way. Just let you know when I tweet shit, stuff like that, I'm not angry. I'm I'm perfectly content. Um, but just hearing that history, it just for the fan of me it does. It just it's I we keep saying this um, food for thought, soul food. That's what it is for me. Okay, you know, All right. that that's important to me. I'm I'm very passionate about the hip hop colonizers. Um, let's talk that, let's talk let's talk well it's Go it's ahead. this thing it's this right said what I said if you if you don't know what I said read it on Twitter but essentially there's people fetish, fetishizing rap hip hop culture there are people who are trying to corner the market thinking that they know it just cause you wanna be cool bro did you did you just hear the in, like listen to Chris Schwartz speak this is a man who's done so much in the game you don't care about cornering a market he wants to put out good music, but do you know what I mean like when people are not cool and people feel like something belongs to them and they appropriate slang and language, not knowing where it comes from. I saw a Twitter bio the other day, mm. and I won't say who it is. I'll tell you off air, not because I'm scared. By the way, I'll just tell you who it is off the air. I understand. A cultured hood rat. That's what they call themselves. Yeah, see, you see what I'm saying? Cultured like, hood rat. We. we 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 are we on the chatty house we talk to people and and there's a there's a growing theme about the realness of rap and this conversation has been going for like 20 years right and it bugs the hell out of me because it exists and i don't think a culture that is pure as rap could be could be fake anyway but that's a different story it's people 
it's people we can't do we can't do nothing about those people however when you are supposed to be of the culture say that you're of the culture hide behind the fact that you're for the culture yet are doing things or your actions don't match your words and this is a number of people it's not one individual but it's a number of people ubiquitous whack mcs ubiquitous yes exactly you have to understand people died over this shit people are still dying over it and so when you're in your the comfort of your own home with the heater on where these people are trying to find a way out of their social and economical circumstances and you play with it like that it pisses me off okay because because I, I i'm not black of course look at my face now you can but, you, you can never you could you could never be black bro you're mad you don't want right. to die. you're mad bro but it's 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 <laughs> i'm missing it's empathy it's seeing something from a different perspective right and i have and i have people who've i've seen stories i've i've, I've heard stories i've been in situations like this is not cool bro and we when we're talking about chatty house or in with friends about the culture and realness has to come back and all this stuff and i don't like how everyone just keeps reverting to cardi b or meg the stallion yeah leave them alone man leave them alone man like bro like everyone's talking about you know cardi b talks about this and cardi b talks about that and i'm like well you know i'll say it on here hardcore by little kim was the first album me and my friends ever stole from the shop statue of limitations and all that safe i think i think stylistically i prefer little kim's music but it takes all different types of pe- different types of people for the world to go around. And what I don't like is when you play women off each other. Oh, but each look other, at right. But look at Rhapsody. Look at Rhapsody. Listen, Rav. When I was at the Jazz Cafe and Rhapsody was performing, she pulled a guy out out of the crowd and started whining on him. Mm. Rhapsody, bro. She's a, she's a woman. Leave. Listen. Leave them alone, leave, Rav. Leave, Just leave them alone. Leave everyone alone. And be leave the change you want to see. Leave them alone. Leave, leave everyone alone. alone i was listening to a uh, mob deep today mm. and i was reminiscing on my experience listening to the infamous do you know what the right. infamous did for me bro and i know i'm pointing it at the screen in it you know it made me join the choir i heard the infamous and i said you know what this life sounds stressful i don't want to be a part of it but then even being able to join a choir made me recognize my privilege because there's people who grew up in those situations who cannot even identify a way out. And yeah. it humbled me immediately. I said, you know what? I'm very fortunate. And that's what I mean. And that's what I mean. People are playing with this. They don't understand it. They don't understand the, the black or Latino experience from back when this started. And it's cool to be a hip hop fan. It's cool to know shit about the far side or whoever. It's cool to be, what I'm finding is people, and not everybody. So when I say people, it's the people I'm referring to. Yeah. They want to be known for being into hip hop culture than actually being into hip hop culture. There it is. You know, like they'll wake up at 4am and be like, yeah, man. Man just woke up in it, listening to Brother, Hinch, Bro- Brother Lynch Hung. Brother, it's 4am. You're not listening to Brother Lynch Hung at 4am. Please relax. Stop trying so hard. Be yourself. Be yourself. No. Facts. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, and, and, and you know what now I'm going to start is we, we are all smart individuals. And if there are people out there who start to associate with these colonizers and you can't see their colonizers for whatever reason because they haven't shown themselves to you, 
Bro, in the music industry, if you're good in the music industry, no matter what part of it you are in, not MCs, not DJ, I'm talking about A&Rs, publicists, managers, whoever. When you're in music and you do it well, you're a good people's person for the most part. Some people are assholes, but the music industry will teach you a lot about people and people skills and to recognize and red flags and this person's cool and this person isn't. If you still if you still choose to associate with hip hop conlizers, despite the fact that I guess music is a fast track into a degree and to know how to deal with people, then you are part of the problem too. Okay. Because this is enough's a fuck enough. You're telling me you're t- bro. What did Q Tip say? What rule was it? Industry number four thousand and eighty. Right. Record labels are still shady. People too. People too. I was um I was uh. Uh, lamenting on your hip hop colonizer theory, and I thought about how the British Empire moved. Um, you know, just going around the world, acting mad, carving up countries, renaming them. You, you stay over there. We've got this part, and the music business and the entertainment business is, is kind of pretty much the same. It's like you it's carve stuff up, and this, this is ours. This is yours. You stay in that box. Will rename, reposition, reappropriate in the name of commerce and not right. culture. So right. um, it's a, it's a sticking point for me as well. But I guess I'm just a bit, I'm just a bit exhausted, and um, I also have to protect my. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm just you know spewing the timeline, but I've got also protect my energy because I I read things differently and I bear the burdens of people that I don't even know and I I can't live like that. That that we all do, we all process. Um we all process things differently and and um we're, we're all gone i was gonna say the colonizers yeah <laughs> them forget box they're gonna get boxed up yeah them, them forget box like, them forget box and then fierce listen i don't know what people are gonna say who are you right they're gonna say to me who are you to even think about fixing your face to say anything about hip-hop colonizers that's what they're gonna say to me and what to you it. why yeah to, to me to me why should I be the voice of someone trying to drive out colonizers or to make them feel uncomfortable? That's what they'll say to me. Are you, you trying to? Are you, are you, but are you trying to be the voice? No, no, I'm not trying to be the voice. But it hit me. I was like, what would Royce of Five Nine say to me? If I was talking to Royce of Five Nine about hip hop colonizers, what would be his first thing he would say to me? I think he would say, "But who are you?" That's what makes me think people might say that to me too. I think you have a point. But here's how I think about things. And sometimes I can get defensive about things. But I think I think about, is the person and what they're saying, are they wrong? Are they fundamentally wrong for what it is they're saying? Is it inaccurate? Is it incorrect? Oh, it's true? Oh, because they don't have 100,000 followers on Twitter, I shouldn't listen. Or I shouldn't take it on board. And this is the problem we have now where you have people who are uninformed leading these discussions. You know, oftentimes you have people say, oh, I wanna, I'm here to learn or I'm here to listen. Well, guess what, bro? You can't do, sometimes you can't do all three. You can't learn, listen and lead at the same time. Sometimes you just got to sit down and hear and see what's going on. Like, I know a lot of people want to talk about, oh, they were here for this and, they, and you, you know, you weren't outside for that. Well, guess what? Just because you were in something doesn't mean you were paying attention. There's yeah. unwritten laws. There's things going on outside of this music that you have to be sensitive to. Yes. Agreed. 
Agreed. The intangible tangibles. You've got to you've got to be sensitive, and that's with that's the thing about culture. It's such a a, a widely encompassing entity, and it means so many different things to people. It's not just music. It's fashion. It's 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 culinary diet. It's how you walk. It's how you it's talk. It's a way of life. It's Bro, the way if, of life that we choose. If I come to your house, I'm gonna greet your wife and your family in a certain way. Why? Because of how I was raised. Culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I ring your house, it's not going to be, yes, bro. Let me chat. It's going to be, good evening. May I speak to so-and-so? Because that's the way I was raised in my mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. However, culture can be appropriated for one's use and benefit as they see fit. Unfortunately. Yes, yes. It, it can be. It can but be. I don't but be a, I don't want to be um, a Debbie Downer. Yeah, but it's okay. Sometimes we have to have the conversation, right? Um, it just it just so happens that it's happening on in, in the episode which was legendary with Chris Schwartz. Yeah, that was and a really okay. really good interview, man. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed speaking to him. And I, as a fan, it's kind of I had some moments in that interview where I had to just process. Like, hold on, you're telling me like this is the guy that helped put together the album that I listened to on the two twenty bus when I was going to school. Like, this is the guy that signed off on it. Nuts. Nuts. That's what I told him the story about Flavor TV. That's real. That's Nuts. real spit. That's mm. real spit. We're like mm. breakfast, having my cereal, watching that. We used to be number ten. Like, come on, man. Like, bro, <laughs> bro. I was listening to Cowboys, you know. <laughs> and um, bruv, why did the tune open up with yodeling, bruv? Odelehi, bruv. Dude, listen. I think you know what. Odelehi, bruv. Me. How are you gonna start? How are you gonna start a verse like that? I don't know, man. I think at some point before the year is out, we should just talk talk about the source, uh, the source, the score. Odelehi, Mister Mister, you end with Mister Mister. Mister, can I borrow five dollars so I have something to eat? Then he started. How many at the how many mics we rip on the deli? I get mad frustrated when I rhyme, bro. Family business. Lauren's verse. She left Earth, bruv. <laughs> she left Earth, bruv. Lauren said like, on the Ready or Not remix, and this is going to be the last thing I said, she said, mm-hmm. if I could change the times and make rhymes raise the babies, give all the pigs rabies, send by in niggas to Hades, clothe young ladies, chase the rainbow, find a pup, three the third time offender once he learned to mix a lot. Bruv? Bruv? I'm done. You can follow us on social media at Break the Atoms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Chris's personal is at I Am Kinetic. Mine is at Hip Hop Chronicle. That's the same for the Chatty House. If Me you too. want to if you want to join us there no um, colonizers we, allowed in it no 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 we're not we're not doing that but sincerely appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in for rocking with us um our listeners really, aren't our listeners aren't colonizers no that i'm not absolutely not that's no, why this is this podcast that's why this is this podcast oh, so. the exactly <laughs> uh again thank you to chris uh make sure you uh tune uh and make sure you stay in tune with uh, his new book coming out everything that rough nation does Go listen to the old albums, mm-hmm. purchase them a few more times. Also, also, thank you to everyone who streamed my new single. It did numbers, bro. Yeah, congrats. Thank congrats. you, man. Congrats. Thank you, man. No Odelehi. None of exactly. that. Exactly. None congrats. of that. With that, we'll be back next week with more episodes. Until then, peace. Peace. <laughs>